Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and today's guest is Robert Joustra, the co-editor with Jessica Joustra of a new book from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, called Calvinism for a Secular Age, a 21st century reading of Abraham Kuyper's Stone Lectures. And we're going to come on and uh, find out who Abraham Kuyper is shortly. But Robert is Associate Professor of Politics and International Studies and the founding director of the Center for Christian Scholarship at Redeemer University College. He's the author of a number of books, including The Religious Problem with Religious Freedom, and is also a Board of Trustees member for the Centre for Public Justice, the co-chair of the Board of Trustees for the Association for Public Justice, and a steering committee member for the International Reformed Theological Institute. And Robert joins me now. Robert, hi. Yeah, thank you for having me. Wonderful to be here. Well, you must be phenomenally busy with all that work. (laughs) Well, I think uh, one or two of those things might be things that my wife is doing, not that I'm doing, but but most of them are things that I am doing. So (laughs) You obviously work together as a team. That's great. Now, Robert, who, tell us, who was Abraham Kuyper? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is a a bit of a strange figure, you know, in some ways uh, for Christians, especially for Christians here where I am in Canada, um, to sort of be interested in, you know, when I mention him, you know, this is, he's not a figure in Canadian history. He's not even really a figure in American history. Um, He's really uh, a Dutch figure. And, you know, Canadians and Americans, you know, and New Zealanders, you know, they may find the Netherlands interesting, but they generally don't, you know, go to them for much other than perhaps, you know, their their tulips and their chocolate. So it's uh, Kuiper was one of these larger than life uh, sort of modernizing figures in the late 19th century. He, he sort of began as a pastor, um, but very quickly intuited um, from his pastoral work in the Netherlands that the gospel needed to be, uh, as one of his favorite con- confessions, the canons of Dort put it, more promiscuously, more promiscuous, you know, that, that, that it had kind of bearing on the sort of whole of life. And so in his personal biography, um, you know, he went from pastor, um, he was a journalist, he was a newspaper founder, he was a politician. Eventually, he was prime minister of the Netherlands in the early 20th century, actually. And, uh, you know, the head of what was called the anti-revolutionary party uh, and became really quite a sensational figure um, in the Netherlands and a very polarizing one. Um, But a theologian, a politician, uh, a journalist, all of those things sort of wrapped into the kind of, you know, a man of many talents as one somewhat overly rosy English biography calls him God's Renaissance man. You know, he did all of these things. And so he left an enormous mark in his context, so much so that, you know, he's still being read and translated all over the world uh, today. Well, come on to talk about his political career, because this is all part of his fascinating personality. But why are the Stone Lectures still so important? Yeah. So the interesting thing about the Stone Lectures is that if we were all, you know, if we were all Dutch boys and girls and learning about Abraham Kuyper, we might not actually learn about the Stone Lectures. We would, you know, read what even Kuyper himself thought were his more important contributions in theology. Um, In fact, there's just been, we've just finished a massive translation project into English of a huge amount of Kuyper's work that's been published by Lexham. Um, So I really commend that to people who might have an interest to it. But the reason why the Stone Lectures have been so influential in the Anglophone world is that they were lectures delivered at Princeton that were specifically for Americans. So they were specifically for an English audience in the United States of America 
by Abraham Kuyper. And so he was, he was very self-aware that he was speaking to the English world in a way, of course, in, that he wasn't when he was in, on the continent. And he, was, he, he had kind of designed and tailored the lectures, as it were, to the kind of Anglophone audience, the way that he thought that they needed to hear them. And for many years, I mean, this was, and still is, to be honest, the introductory, the standard introductory work. You know, if you're your, you know, your regular sort of, you know, pew-sitting Christian in the United States or Canada or Australia or New Zealand or wherever, and you hear about Abraham Kuyper, the odds are the only thing by him you've probably read or that you'd come across are these stone lectures, because for decades and decades, this was really the kind of main thing by him that was available in the English world. What was so significant about Princeton's seminary at that point in yeah. history? Yeah, I mean, this was uh, this was a hot spot, uh, as it were, especially in the late 19th century um, for a certain kind of Calvinism. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why Kuiper was invited specifically to give what he ended up calling his lectures on Calvinism. The Stone Lectures are a series. Uh, in fact, his colleague, Herman Bavink, who's enjoying something of a renaissance right now in uh, the international sort of uh, Christian community, um, would also come to Princeton and give a stone like the stone lectures. And that's that's published separately under something called the philosophy of revelation. But so so Kuiper was being invited very specifically into the American context to help speak into the kind of cultivation of a kind of American Calvinism and American Christianity and see, you know, look, is there something that we can learn from our Dutch brothers and sisters across the Atlantic that they can help us think through in an American context? Yes. Why were they so? Why were the lectures so controversial at Princeton? Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways, actually, they they sort of passed um, with less fanfare than we might expect. They weren't very heavily attended. You know, people sometimes imagine, oh, these you know famous lectures that are still read more than a hundred years later. There must have been you know a thousand people in the room, and you know it was widely celebrated. In fact, it wasn't. Uh, there weren't that many people in the room, only a couple dozen people in the room. Some of the major Princeton theologians were critical of Kuiper, didn't perhaps share some of the ways that he thought uh, about his Calvinism. Kuiper, very importantly, he didn't change, in my opinion, the sort of core ideas about Calvinism, but he accented them differently. Um, and even today in the United States, you know, if you if people say, well, I'm a Calvinist, right? Often the shorthand for that, what people mean by that is they mean, well, I have a particular view on salvation, on soteriology, you know, ideas like predestination, election, and so on. And, you know, Kuiper was not opposed to those ideas. I mean, he was a Calvinist. He believed in the kind of doctrinal standards of predestination. But he said, you know, those doctrines, those he called them soteriological doctrines, right? That's the theological term. Those doctrines are, are important, but they're a secondary outworking of what he considered to be the fundamental cornerstone of Calvinism. And that's the sovereignty of God, you know, that God is at the center. And out of that come these really important doctrines about how human beings are saved and what, you know, how God works in our salvation and so on and so forth. And, you know, that remains to this day uh, an item of real controversy in American Christianity. You know, what, what, how exactly do we think about God's saving work and how does that relate to his sort of claim to all of life? Is it a more narrow, pietistic interpretation or is it a more capacious culture, engage, culture engaging interpretation? And Kuiper, while fully affirming the, piet the pietistic uh, element, wanted to say no, but it also drives us out into a kind of life of gratitude. Yes. Uh, why did Kuiper think that the gospel was for the whole of creation? Yeah, I mean, in, in, in some ways, this is, you know, Kuiper's enthusiasm for Calvinism. This is how he would have put it, you know, his enthusiasm for sort of worldviewish Calvinism wasn't because he thought, you know, John Calvin was so amazing, although he did appreciate and love Calvin very much, but because he thought 
this was the truest encapsulation of the breadth of the good news, right? That this was, this was, you know, when Christ comes to make all things new, he is coming in a sense of the cosmic story of scripture, not merely to set right human hearts and human spirits, although he is coming to set those right too, but he is coming as it were on a rescue mission for the whole of creation. And so, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, Kuiper's Calvinism begins with a very, begins really in Genesis, you know, where God makes all of these things and says, look, these things are good, right? And very quickly, it goes terribly wrong, but God puts in motion this extraordinary plan for how he's going to make it right again. And it's not just about restoring human hearts and human uh, souls. It's actually about, you know, the material creation, the whole of what God calls good. And so that really, I mean, this is, this is what Kuiper has in his mind. You, you know, the, the, the salvific work of God is not less than, you know, the, the human person, the soteriology that sort of, you know, the, the so-called sort of traditional Calvinist focus on. It's, it's also all of the rest, you know, along the way. That was his, that was, I think, one of his sort of key insights for what he called worldviewish Calvinism. Yes. And so how, how would Kuiper argue that we, can, as Christians, we can each work in our own professional area? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the this is the continuity that I think Kuiper has with the Protestant Reformation, this profound affirmation of everyday life. Right. A, a total resistance to the idea that there is a kind of you know spiritual hierarchy in the way that human beings are called. But instead, a recognition that, you know, God loves it, you know, when we write beautiful poetry you know, when we play beautiful music, when we are carpenters and electricians and scholars and these kinds of things. And so he said, you know, this is, this is, you know, the mission to which we are called to. Now, how do we do that? That's actually what these lectures work out, right? So first he sets down, and this is the template for the lectures, right? First he sets down, look, you know, I've got to tell you guys, this is what I think Calvinism is about, right? It, it, it's more than just about the salvation of human beings. It's about God's call on the whole of human life. So he sets that out in his lectures on Calvinism in worldview and Calvinism in religion. But then he actually walks through. If this is true, right, if it's true, well, then we've got to ask ourselves, in what ways, how shall we live these lives of gratitude and obedience to the Lord in these other areas? So this is where he writes, he, he gives lectures on science and art and politics, you know, and many of these things that people say, well, hold on, is there a distinctively Christian way to think about these things? But he drives us back to scripture and he drives us back to the work of Christian theology and philosophy to help us think through, okay, what might a distinctively Christian way of approaching some of these areas be? And what might God's yes be in the areas of art and politics and science? And how would we work that out? And so that's what we do in this book, actually. Uh, we walk through Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism, a lecture at a time, and bring contemporary experts who are experts both in Kuiper, but experts also in those particular areas to see, okay, what did he say? How does it, what does he, what does he have for us today? And, and, and perhaps what error, errors are there as well, because there are some, um, and how should we, how should we live in the midst of that? So that's how we tried to sort of pattern the book. And that was very much Kuiper's project as well in 1898. I'm going to come on and ask you who the contributors are towards the end of the interview, if we can leave them till then. I'm, that might yep. seem ungracious. It's not intended, but I want to get all the, the, this other stuff dealt with first. Mm -hmm. In what ways are our times reminiscent of Kuiper's? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the things that makes, you know, Kuiper's um, lectures 
fresh in a way, um, but also also that they read in a very sort of contemporary way. You know, Kuiper's time, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century were a time of extraordinary change, extraordinary cataclysm in a way. I, I you know, I many of my students, you know, are, are often reflecting on the dizzying pace, pace of technological change. And of course, it, it, it is true, you know, there is there is much change in the world and much innovation. But um, you know, I often think, you know, it would, it pales in comparison <laughs> to the kind of, to the kind of fundamental transformation that things like, you know, uh, 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 you know, electricity and the internal combustion engine, you know, and the construction of railroads and all of these, and, and fixed nitrogen, you know, and fertilizer and so on that enabled the world eventually to kind of feed so many more that, than we ever thought that we would. I mean, it was, it was an extraordinary time of ambition and of accomplishment. Yes, and also of schism. Right of rising populism, of rising nationalism, you know, of a sense of fear and anxiety, you know, of uh, uh, and even of the kind of untethering of of, of a global order, um, and we would see that, you know, even in Kuiper's lifetime and the crash of what they would call the Great War, you know, and Kuiper himself is accused, and I think, frankly properly so, of a degree of Eurocentrism, of racial hierarchy, of racial prejudice, and, and, and straight out racism in some of his, his writing, although he is confusing on this point, because he writes with such startling appreciation for diversity on the one hand, and then, and then also, you know, has these, these sort of tragic and terrible sections in another. But there is this, there is this sense uh, in the process of the Great War that it is a deeply sobering moment, you know, in which he sees the profound limitations of what he thought were Christian Europe. You know, Christian Europe, which had worked out, you know, which he thought had done such extraordinary work in kind of pushing the gospel into its culture, pushing it into its politics and into its public life. And yet he sees, you know, and he, this is actually his reflection on it, that not a one failed, uh, you know, to, 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 to satellite the flames of sort of, of, of avarice and imperialism and egoistic competition that led to, you know, the cataclysm that was the Great War. And so, you know, we are not living amidst, at least not yet, uh, a global conflict, <laughs> um, but we are living amidst, you know, bellicose, intransigent, rising nationalism. We are living amidst dramatic change. We are living amidst the kind of perennial feeling of anxiety and sort of dislocation. And in that sense, Kuiper's times, uh, the, the sort of emotion, the spirit of Kuiper's age feels very resonant with the spirit and the emotion of ours. Yeah, how can Kuiper help us in our modern polarized society, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the things that, that, that people often go to Kuiper for. Uh, it's certainly what first attracted me to Kuiper. Uh, you know, I when I first encountered Kuiper, I was, a, I was a college student, I was a freshman student, and it was September of 2001. And I was immediately confronted as a politics student with the conflict around deep diversity, if I could put it that way, you know, that there was this sense after in the 1990s in which, you know, um, perhaps, you know, much of the deepness of diversity was going away. And we agreed on a lot of the kind of fundamental technical questions about economic growth and sort of political justice and social institutions. So there would be disagreements on the margins, but they'd always be on the margins. And yet, you know, I think in 2001 that the, the hubris of that bubble very much burst and we became very much, particularly in the North Atlantic world, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that bubble needed bursting in many other places, but, um, um, you know, we became very aware that this, that these perennial conflicts had not gone away. How does Kuiper help us with that? Well, I think in the first and fundamental sense, 
Kuiper is resistant to the mod to the modern solution, which is we must scrub religion, we must scrub spirituality from public life and arrive at some kind of neutral place. You know, Kuiper says, no, that's right out, because if this God who is sovereign is Lord over all of things, then we as Christians, you know, and probably others, you know, he has these journeys that he takes, he calls it around the old world sea, the Mediterranean, in which he expresses deep appreciation for Islam, actually. And he says, you know, you know, when he's reading and, and he's studying and he's sort of traveling through some of these Islamic countries, especially Egypt uh, and some others around the, the Mediterranean, he says, you know, uh, you know, the Islamic faith is is the ally of the Calvinists in seeing that all of life is lived under, you know, obedience, surrender, you know, to to, to God. Um, and so, you know, I think the first thing that, that's one of the first things that Kuiper has for us, a, a sort of acknowledgement that actually, you know, deep diversity is something on which good, strong, flourishing plural societies are, are predicated. They're built. They must, it must, must not be expunged. It must be brought into the public. But then how to live together amidst that deep diversity. That is, I think, the second part that Kuiper gives us a, 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 an answer for. And this, he says, you know, we must bring it. We must be forthright about it. But then, of course, we must. And Kuiper is of a voice, you know, he's also part of, uh, he's not part of the Anglo tradition, but he's part of the continental tradition that's trying to work out these questions. And so he would argue, he would make arguments that would find parallels in the Anglo tradition. People like John Rawls talking about overlapping consensus or the way Dan Philpot puts it, rooted reasons, rooted rationale, right? Uh, the way it's put when the Jacques Maritain famously, the Catholic puts it in uh, negotiating the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we all agree on these rights provided nobody asks us why. You know, um, and, and Kuiper says, you know, this has to be, that's a fragile state, but this has to be the, 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 the kind of gold standard of a pluralistic society, which is we agree on certain kinds of rights, certain boundaries, certain principles, um, and we think that they're important and we write them down. I mean, we might call them things like constitutions or charters, but we all have different reasons for agreeing on. You know, you in New Zealand and us in Canada as well, we'll be very familiar with systems like this. I mean, we have written constitutions and uh, those constitutions do not tell us this is why you believe. What they do is they say these are the, these are the common things that we hold in common. Now, you are a Hindu, you are a Baha'i, you are an atheist, you are an atheist, you are a Calvinistic Christian. We're going to have very different reasons for why we think that these rights and these constitutions are good and true and they deserve our support and they deserve our spirited kind of public uh, profile, but we can still all agree on them. That's that's a fragile thing. It's an anxious thing, right? But Kuiper thought it was something that could, maybe should, be done. And uh, it's still a very tall order for our day. And so one of the things that Kuiper, one of the one of the tasks that Kuiper is often put to um, by political scientists and, 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 and theologians in the North Atlantic world is as a, as a kind of advocate for what's called principled pluralism. That's, that's what I've just described. And that's what organizations like the Center for Public Justice in Washington, D.C. and CARDIS here in Canada really advocate for this kind of a model. And it really emerges out of, you know, these Kuiperian ideas that appear in the Stone Lectures. Did, did Kuiper actually believe in a Christian state? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is so. This is a uh, uh, this is an item of some debate. <laughs> yes, I realize that. <laughs> yeah, along the way, um, and uh, 
uh, even today in the United States, actually, uh, as some debate, um, you know, there was a very famous uh, editorial in the New York Times by uh, uh, Senator Josh Howley, who sort of made the argument that, you know, Kuiper was a sort of version of a modern day theocrat. Um, and some people do sort of dismiss him that way. You know, they say, well, you know, Kuiper, he, he clearly believed that Christianity should be in public life. He believed that Christianity was the best and truest foundation for sort of public life. And so that makes him a theocrat. You know, I don't think so. And um, let me again sort of turn by, an, by way of analogy to Jacques Maritain, you know, his de- uh, negotiation around the Universal Declaration, because, you know, we love to quote, it is a great snappy quotable, you know, we all agree on these rights provided nobody asks us why, but he actually goes on to articulate why there is no coherent, stable way to imagine human rights that is not fundamentally grounded in Catholicism. <laughs> right? That's Maritain's argument. Of course, he makes that argument. I mean, he's, he's one of that he's one of uh, the Catholic Church's most celebrated political theorists of the 20th century. And he says, you know, there's really no coherent way to get here. I mean, the Calvinists can try, but it's not really going to work. The atheists can try, definitely not going to work. You know, it's really got to be the Catholic way. Great that other people are trying, you know, but it's really got to be the Catholic way. So this was this was Maritain's argument. He wouldn't rob other people of their articulations. He'd just say, I don't think it's the best, most stable, truest interpretation. I think the Catholic one is the truest. I think Kuiper would make a very similar argument. You know, he'd say, look, if you're looking for a sure footing, a sure grounding for public principles, for a kind of spirited pluralism, the best place that you can go to is Calvinism. And the best, you know, that that's going to give you the most robust set of public principles. It's going to be rooted in the most sort of, it's going to conform as best as it can to the norms and the principles that God has established in his created order. You know, that's going to give you, you know, the best way of going about this. In that sense, you know, Kuiper is just... A Calvinist, you know, I don't think that makes him a theocrat. I just think it's a, it, he's not outlawing. A, a theocrat would say other people cannot bring their arguments to the public square, right? Kuiper would say other people can bring the best version of their public arguments, and I'm going to bring the best version of mine, and I happen to think I'm right. And I'd be surprised if you didn't think that you were too, <laughs> um, right? But let's have that argument, and let's together try to forge the best and most just and most stable sort of system of government that we have, that, 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 that we can manage. And that, to me, I think is a good sort of Kuyperian, a good Calvinist, even a good Augustinian picture of proximate justice. Yes, you seem very modern to me in the way you thought about church and state, uh, phenomenally so for someone speaking in the late 19th century. But I wonder, in what sense can his pluralism help us today in our divided communities across the world? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think one of the it's not one of the, it's, it's not a disappointment exactly, but one of the things it points to, and this is, this is what the Muslim scholar Shadi Hamid, by the way, who's, who's, uh, describes himself as a Kapirian Muslim. Um, I'm not entirely sure how that works, but he, he reads Abraham Kuyper, really enjoys and appreciates him and thinks that Kuyper, you know, the Muslim world needs something like Abraham Kuyper. And his argument goes like this. A lot of the problem about the fragile, a lot of the problem with the fragility of states is that, uh, especially in the Arab world, as he's, he's talking, so not broadly the Muslim world, but very much the Arab Muslim world he's talking about. He says a lot of the fragility in that, in that region is owed to the fact that people expect states, there's a kind of winner-take-all sort of approach, right? That the state becomes the kind of coercive lens through which the kind of formation of society is made. So the state makes a society, uh, in other words. So it's always a kind of winner-takes-all, and if you don't get it, then you're completely expunged from public life kind of thing. And he says, you know, that makes for not only very fractious, but also very violent and polarized politics. And he worries, and by the way, he writes, I think, quite convincingly about this, that the levers of power in the United States of America are beginning to look more like that than they used to. 
right? In which there is this sense uh, in which, you know, the power of the state is now, you know, so, so extraordinary that, you know, the ability to kind of, you know, remove the other side, to remove them from polite discourse, to remove them from the kind of public balance sheet or the equation has become a kind of winner takes all system. What he loved, you know, what, what Shadi loves about Kuiper's model, um, and this is the gamble of is that it depends on kind of what, what Edmund Burke would call the little platoons. You know, he said, you know, first you've got to have the richness of, um, you know, civil and social institutions, right? So that, for example, there's a recognition on the part of religious and political communities that even, in, even if you don't attain political power, you have not somehow lost all of the levers of social and political influence. Right, you are still a part of society. You are still a voice that is there. You may not have power. You may be marginal, but you're still robustly engaged with it. And I think you know this is the model of Kuyperians that they've adopted in, for example, Canada, where I am. Um, you know, we are in no danger of a mainstream Kuyperian political party in Canada. <laughs> we are in no danger of this. <laughs> Nor are we in New Zealand, I would think. No, I don't think. No, I don't think that you are. But. We do have a huge, a very thick array of social and civil institutions. I'm speaking to you from one right now. It's called Redeemer University. It is founded in the tradition of Abraham Kuyper. It is literally founded on the model of the university that Abraham Kuyper founded, the Free University of Amsterdam. That's where Redeemer University comes from, right? I have worked with and for organizations like CARDIS, a think tank. I have published in newspapers uh, that were founded under this vision. I have worked alongside Christian labor associations that were founded in this vision. And that was what, that, that's the kind of envy that a kind of Muslim Kuyperian like Shadi Hamid has for a Kuyperian vision, because it's not a, it's not a winner take all, use the state to coerce your vision. There's a robustness to the kind of grassroots to what Kuyper would call the clan Elida, right? Um, there's a reason why I learned about Kuyper from, you know, my dad, who was not a pastor, was not a theologian. In fact, you know, I have more university degrees in my person than my entire family does put together. <laughs> you know, my dad was an electrician, you know, and he learned his electrical mechanical license after the Second World War, you know, in the Netherlands on a ship. And, and he learned Kuiper and he learned this approach to religion and to life, you know, from his father and how there was a way to imagine being an electrician to the glory of God, mm. right? And for, there, and for there to be a dignity, you know, and a, 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 and, and a kind of passion and a gratitude that you could be oriented toward that kind of a profession that I think so often the Christian world simply leaves behind and says, well, you're an electrician over here, Monday to, you know, probably Saturday, because they're pretty long hours. Um, but on Sunday, you know, you come and do something different, right? And that was totally different from the way that my dad heard about it. And that Shadi Hamid would recognize in the Muslim world, but he said, then we must go the step further in that world and build the civil and social associations that thicken and create the space in which social solidarity and sort of political influence can continue to take place, even if you're not necessary, even if you don't always have your sort of fingers on on the on the levers of power. Now, yeah, a, a couple more questions before we close. Yes. Uh, I, I, we could talk all probably all morning about this. I was fascinated by Kuiper's view of history. He, to what extent did he see history as this conflict between Christianity yeah. and what he called, I think, naturalism? We might call yeah. it secularism. Or rationalism, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. So this 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 comes. Uh, so Kuiper himself studied with a fellow called Hunden Prinster, who's really one of the founders of the anti-revolutionary party. 
And uh, his work has been translated into English actually by my old history professor, Harry Van Tyke, <laughs> um, uh, who's done a lot of this work. And when they talked about the anti-revolutionary party, the revolution that they had in mind was the French Revolution, right? This is the bad boy for Hunvin Prinster and the ARP, as it were. Now, what do they have in mind? They say, look, there is either on the one hand, obedience to God, a recognition that we live lives of gratitude to the creator, you know, who has come and, and, and made not only all things around us, but also brought salvation to us. Or on the other hand, there is ourselves, right? And Kuyper and Hunt van Prinster, in their interpretation of the French Revolution, saw in the French Revolution a very radical kind of, they called it anthropocentrism. Right? The idea in which some sense of transcendence, some sense of God had been dislocated from the center of human life and human beings themselves have been the center. Uh, and so I think Kuiper very much sees the contemporary battle in his day and I think would recognize even in our day, many of the same contemporary manifestations in which the anthropocentrism of sort of, every, of everyday life has reached a crescendo. I think in our day that was already working its way out in uh, uh, in, in Kuiper's uh, in Kuiper's day. So yeah, I think he would recognize that the sense of kind of anthropocentric naturalism, you know, that we are you know that we are simply human beings are at the center of the universe, that we are natural stuff, that there is nothing beyond a kind of observable empirical kind of kind of reality. That that view of the world has not always been the primary challenge to belief and faith in Jesus Christ. But I think Kuiper in his day said, this today is our challenge. And, you know, that, that summary is not totally different from, you know, very large works like Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, when he talks about, you know, how do we live today? Who are we? What is our kind of diagnoses? The diagnoses that Taylor makes in A Secular Age would be wholly understandable to Kuiper. He would say, yes, this is this is our challenge. You know, we must we must find a way beyond these kinds of naturalistic anthropocentric sort of visions that uh, that are kind of at the, the, the center of our of our difficulties. OK, final question. We must come to them. Who are the contributors to this book? <laughs> so the contributors for the book were chosen based on both their expertise in Kuiper. So, you know, people who really understood who Abraham Kuiper was, probably read him in the original in Dutch, and so are able to bring a lot more than just an understanding of these lectures, but then also were experts in their area. So we've got names that I think, you know, would be familiar to folks who have heard of Abraham Kuiper, Jim Bratt. Uh, writes the preface. He is by far, you know, probably the best recognized authority in the English world. He's written the, the wonderful biography of Abraham Kuyper uh, that's available from Erdman's. Richard Mao, who has written, you know, very, very widely on Calvinism, Calvinism for the Las Vegas airport. He shines in all that's pair, writes on Calvinism and, and worldview life systems. James Eglinton's just finished probably one of the most uh, celebrated sort of religious biographies in the last year or two of Herman Bavink. Well, he writes on Kuiper and religion, and Bavink was very much Kuiper's disciples, so that's uh, a wonderful fit. Jonathan Chaplin is, again, probably one of the English world's leading experts on Doiverd, who was a disciple of <laughs> Kuiper and uh, the director of a think tank uh, in the United Kingdom called Theos um, for a long time. He writes on politics, uh, his wife, Adrian and Derek Chaplin, who's also uh, an aesthetic philosopher, as well as working in the artistic community in the United Kingdom, writes on art. Deborah Harsma, who is the president of Biologos, um, as well as a, an astronomer from Calvin, writes on Kuiper and science. Bruce Ashford from Southeastern and, 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 and lately an independent scholar, writes on Kuiper and the future. And then we added two chapters 
And one is by Vince Baco, uh, who's the director of a center at Wheaton, as well as a very well-known theologian in the world of Christian ethics. And he writes on Kuiper and race because there are so many problems in these original stone lectures on Kuiper and race. And he helps us kind of assess that legacy, not sweep it under the rug, not ignore it, not say it doesn't matter, acknowledge it, face it, what do we do with it? And Vince, I think, has written very, very well on this in the past. Um, and writes on it uh, very well here as well. And finally, George uh, Harink, who I call the neo-Calvinist Indiana Jones, is uh, the free uh, historian of the free university, you know, probably um, one of the leading experts in the world on Abraham Kuyper, a Dutchman. Uh, and he's also affiliated with the Theological University of Kampen, where he directs their neo-Calvinist research institute. And he looks at the original translation of these lectures and where the text came from and how it differed and, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the background for that. So that's maybe a bonus track for people who really kind of want to dig into the kind of theological footnotes. George is your guy. He always kind of has the backstory. <laughs> well, I've got to say, I'm, go I'm going to go and track down that biography of Kuiper from Erdman's yeah. because uh, I'm fascinated by this, this gentleman. So a very rich half hour with Robert Joustra, the co-editor with Jessica Joustra of this new book from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, called Calvinism for a Secular Age a 21st century reading of Abraham Kuyper's Stone Lectures. So if you want to think about how you Christianly do what you do and how you celebrate and explore the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your work and in every aspect of your life, grab a copy of this because it'll get you thinking, that's for sure. And thanks, as always, to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes, as they always do. Thank goodness. Thank you, Robert, for, for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, pleasure talking to you. Okay. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.